welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Today, we jump back into this conversation that we are having about this chunk of Matthew's gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you didn't already get a journal, we'd love for you to pick one up. There's some of the Connection Center there. If you want to pick one up for free, you can track on our teaching, but then this is also a place where you can learn a little bit more about where we're going as a community and jot notes. So make sure you take advantage of that. Now, for many commentators, and scholars of the biblical literature, this sermon is widely considered to be Jesus' best, or at least his most important one. And I have to say, as somebody who writes sermons and then gives sermons, and then because of the way that we archive these things, as someone who has really bad sermons preserved forever on the internet, I'm a little jealous that Jesus' followers and friends seem to have only remembered the good ones, And they edited the ones where Jesus didn't quite tie all his ideas together very well because you know that happened, right? That Jesus got riffing on this thing he was fixated on in the Jewish law, but it was just too deep for his audience. Or people just got up and walked out on him from time to time. And I'm I'm kidding a little bit, but I'm also not. Because a robust Christology, which is just our theology about Jesus, Orthodox Christology affirms Jesus' humanity. And to do so is to say that Jesus became the person that we see in the gospel texts, which is what we were talking about last week with this whole idea that Jesus grew into and gradually formed the truth that he offered in these sermons. And this is a process that's real for you and for me as well, where grace has a way of accumulating in our lives and moving us forward. But then, of course, we started unpacking this first section of the sermon, what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, where we see Jesus do this really incredible thing. See, at this point in the story of Jesus, he has started to lay out his work and his ministry and talking about what they're all about. And then after healing the sick and the marginalized in some towns and some villages around him, now he's setting some of the agenda for what this burgeoning social movement he's starting is going to look like in the future. And right off the top, he makes it clear that the economy of God's kingdom isn't owned or dominated by the privileged or those with resources or those with impeccable moral resumes. No, he he says the opposite. He flips the script on religious meaning making by telling his audience, listen, the surest path to you flourishing in the world is your own poverty. In those moments when you are least resistant to grace and to the help that you need. And in these first Beatitudes, Jesus seems to be pointing at how our nearness to God and our nearness to a sure-footed life is actually measured by those moments where we have no agency, where our resources run out, and when we are overrun with grief, or when we are the ones without power. But then Jesus keeps going into this paradox that he's describing by giving us this vision for how the world might be more like God imagines, where in those moments where we might be less than our best selves, which happens a lot, right? I mean, my youngest daughter wasn't impressed with me not that long ago, and as she left the room, she sort of threw over her shoulder, oh, dad, you make so many mistakes. I literally just sort of sat there, I was shocked, and you know what, she wasn't wrong. We all live through times when we lack strength and wisdom and resources to do the right. 
And then there's those seasons of our lives when we aren't quite sure where our faith is at, which are the times that Jesus speaks to with the second half of his Beatitudes, giving us this picture of how we can work to bring life wherever we are, a world that we can try to create, one in which those who are hungering and longing for justice, they can actually see it come to them, and one in which we do the hard work of offering mercy instead of giving vengeance. One in which we realize that being like Jesus will result in others accusing us and slighting us and ignoring us because being a peacemaker doesn't mean that we will avoid conflict, but perhaps instead, it means that we will push for boundaries and we will push for honesty and we will push for transparency and we all know what happens when we do that. Which isn't to say that Jesus was giving us a list of things that we should be doing so much as he was revolutionizing the way that we think of being devout, where our lack of strength is what brings God's best sometimes, and where our attempts to build the world as God imagines brings it to life far more brilliantly than having our theological accounts in order, which is both a comforting and a challenging thing to hear, no? Which is what makes it such a good sermon. But guess what, that's just the intro. And we're gonna keep going with it this morning, but first, let's pray together. God, you are present to us now. To you, our hearts are open, and all of our desires are known, and we are grateful for the moments that we share now. How we share in the joy and the practice of community, of being recognized and known, and even for those of us where this might be a new space, we trust that we are welcomed. And we ask that you would be with us as we may be feeling as though our strength is fading. That you'd be with us in the spaces of our life where hope feels distant, where we might be tired and stretched and alone. Come and restore gentle, seeking spirit and give us insight and grace to care for each other when we see these needs. And as we take up the text today, turn us from some far off dream of who we could be and toward the gift of living in this moment now. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, so before we dive back into Jesus' sermon, I wanna start today by making a few observations about some hints that are in the text. See, in Matthew chapter four, we read that Jesus had started to make some public appearances, and he had gone on the record that what he was doing was what God was in the world to do at that moment, and in doing this, he was saying that God's kingdom and God's rule in the world, that these things had come close to the people who were in first century Palestine. And the story goes that he starts taking invites to speak at other synagogues, and he starts caring for and restoring some people's bodies, and not surprisingly, he must have been a good speaker, and he was clearly doing some work with people. News about him spreads to the north, and we see people coming to him with all of their issues, with their physical pain, and with their mental and their spiritual confusion, and then we read that large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan followed Jesus. And scholars debate just how big these crowds would have been and really there is no way to be sure. 
Which is why perhaps it might be more helpful for us to use a literary lens when we read things like this, which looks at this list of places and concludes that the important idea that the ancient author is trying to get us to take notice of is that there's different kinds of people coming to Jesus. There's people from the rural north, and there's people from the ruling south, there's people from the center of the Jewish political establishment, there's religious fanatics, there's people from places where Greco-Roman culture was crowding out Jewish life, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's people with significant need, and there's probably some elites and some power brokers of the culture there too. Now, we remember that we read last week that when Jesus saw these people gathering, he decides to go up on a hillside and give a sermon. And the text says that his disciples, that those he invited to follow and join him in his work, that these people sat around him and that he taught them. Which isn't that surprising. This sermon is a pretty unified body in its message and it's given to those who want to follow Jesus' way of being in the world. And the demands that are made on those kinds of people are really strong, which we're gonna get into a little bit more today and in the weeks to come. The point is that we get these mixed messages about who's actually listening to this sermon. Because there's all these crowds coming to get help from Jesus, and then he seems to be talking pretty exclusively to his friends and to insiders. But then we get to the end of the sermon, and we learn that when Jesus had finished all of these, saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And there are various theories as to what's going on here, that maybe we have different accounts or traditions of Jesus' life that have been cut together, where his intimate teaching to his closest friends is placed in the setting where a host of early seekers may have just happened to hear. I mean, to be clear, Luke has Jesus giving this same sermon to a group of people after coming off of a mountain. So really, all we know is that there were people around, and all we can hope is that Jesus wasn't talking to himself. Which is why I wanna keep coming back to this literary lens that I mentioned a second ago, which encourages us to tease out what the author's memory and choices hint at. The picture in which Jesus' strongest words are given to his disciples, to those who have already signed up, and the implication that this diverse group of people with a host of concerns and self-interested pursuits and their political persuasions that those people are listening to, and that that diverse group of people that they are amazed at Jesus' clarity, they are amazed at how his teaching stirs their hearts more than they're used to hearing. And I think that's worth noting. Because of the way this story about a sermon accounts for all the places that we stand when we encounter Jesus. I mean, let's be honest. Almost every sermon given, including what I'm doing right now, these things go out into space where people who are at different places of their spiritual journey, they hear them and then they process them. And what I love about this picture of Jesus is how he doesn't sand down the sharp points of his message for the guy at the bottom of the hill who thinks he's standing in the back of a food line, or for the child who happens to have been dragged to the mountain by their parents. And this sermon he gives doesn't start with a disclaimer that it's intended only for the serious person and for the qualified or the really invested or the truly committed Now listen, we can't hide from the fact that Jesus makes some pretty high demands in this teaching, 
or we can't hide from the fact that it's, we find throughout the sermon actually that there's this undercutting pull in the message where Jesus is trying to get everybody who's listening to move from where they are towards God's best. We can't paint a picture of Jesus pandering to the interests of this larger crowd that he's trying to hold on to. He's not stacking his hashtags in the hope of getting followers, no. But what we can do is give ourselves grace to be who we are in the crowd. And maybe you're here today and you're recovering from some painful religious experiences and you've been deconstructing some of who you think Jesus is and just to be sitting here is a big deal. Or maybe you're a guest with us today and you feel as though you're about as far back in the crowd as you could be. Maybe you're just an observer. Jesus has this novelty. You like some of what he has to say. He seems like a good dude, but maybe somebody you know and love is really into Jesus, but you're still a little undecided. Or maybe you're a long time and serious student of Jesus' teaching. You find meaning in it and you appreciate it. Or maybe you're a long time follower, but you have some skepticism that you're working through. Whatever the case, This story about a sermon shows us that Jesus didn't think that his most important message was too heavy for the passing bystander. And he didn't outline his good news in focus groups to figure out what his primary audience was, and he didn't think that this truth he had to offer was only for those who had already made up their mind, which is how we should hear this sermon today, from where we are, which just means that everybody gets to hear it. Or maybe today is the day we learn to trust that truth isn't as interested in filtering itself exclusively for the invested or the intellectually settled or the religiously committed as it is in inviting each of us, wherever we stand, to step closer to the life of the divine that we see in Jesus from where we are. Now, that, that, ex, that perspective is actually super helpful with these verses that we're looking at today. See, Jesus gives the Beatitudes to his followers and the pronouns in Greek show that he's still talking to his followers when he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world A town built on a hill can't be hidden and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And here, in these verses, Jesus is affirming what Hans Benz calls the self-understanding and identity of the earliest Christian community, which just means that these phrases likely meant a lot to the earliest followers of Jesus. The challenge, as almost all commentators will state, is that it's really difficult to understand what Jesus is getting at by talking about salt. But I think the most cohesive sort of explanation I found is represented in the scholarship of a guy named Jonathan Pennington who accounts, this is so nerdy, but he accounts for salt usage in the ancient world. And he points to how salt was this intrinsic part of Hebrew worship and covenant observance, where salt was actually supposed to be added to offerings and sacrifices of the people. 
And I've thrown some text up on the screen for you there where on one hand, salt serves as a sign of the long hand or long-lasting nature of God's commitment to the people because salt has this preserving quality, right? But then on the other hand, salt is a sign of how worship and offerings were to symbolize a kind of savory gift because salt has this flavor-enhancing quality too, right? So Jesus seems to be drawing on this analogy that his Jewish audience would have been familiar with because many of them would have seen salt being put on offerings in Jewish worship. And Jesus is telling them that with lives lived in this new way of being that he's discussing, that they actually show God's long-lasting covenant to all creation and that they add flavor to the world. Or if we put ourselves into the story, how you and I might, with our lived experience, embody God's great love for all people and how we might make the world more savory. And listen, that might make sense for some of us, and I think there's a hint of something going on, but I think there's also a hint of something more, and to discover this, I think we actually need to go to YouTube, which is only makes sense, and I have to confess that one of my more recent guilty YouTube pleasures has been the Epicurious channel. Does anybody know this channel? Okay, I got some nods. Okay, that's great, I'm not alone. This is a channel that frames itself as for those who love to eat. So you should all be watching. And this channel produces all kinds of videos. Things like 50 people failing in their attempts to make a quesadilla, or they'll preview and give you a sense of what the next amazing kitchen gadget might be that you need to get. And to be honest, or but to be honest, my favorite videos are the ones where they bring in a food expert and a particular food item like cheese or wine or tea or condiments, and that person does blind tastings between two varieties of that kind of food and guesses which is most expensive which is so fun, because they usually get it right. And I know I've just ruined Sunday afternoon for some of you, because you're gonna deep dive this, but I'm mentioning it because there's a salt one. And I watched it a few months ago, and this guy, he takes food detail to all new levels, talking about and comparing different kinds of salt, which is amazing. But here's the deal. I learned something intriguing about salt. And it came to mind as I was thinking about this sermon that Jesus gives, and more specifically, I learned something about the kind of salt that would have been common in the first century, harvested from the shores of the Dead Sea, which was just to the east of Jerusalem. It's still there. They still make salt there. I learned something about something called fleur de sel. Does everybody know what this is? It sounds really pretentious, except it just means salt flour. And this kind of salt is solar-produced. Harvested from the first salt crystals that form in the brine that's found in natural salt pans. And get this part of what makes fleur de sel so valuable is how it takes on different flavors depending on where it's from. Because as Salt Guru here points out, different environments have different biomaterial in them. What a nebulous phrase that is. Biomaterial, things like dirt and minerals and plant life. And these things fall into the salt pans and mix into the salt and give it a unique local flavor. And that is this really profound idea when we think about the analogy that Jesus is making, where he seems to be saying, look, My followers, they're like salt. 
But then with the phrase of the earth or of the land, scholars think that Jesus was making an allusion to how his followers would be in savory influence for the Jewish people in the land that they were living in. But then with this understanding of salt flour I'm talking about, Jesus is also kind of saying, look, my followers are like salt from the earth for the earth. Where yes, your life as you follow the way of Jesus is meant to reveal God's long-lasting and preserving love for the world, and yes, it's meant to add savoriness to other people's experience in the world. Taking what's bland and tasteless in their lives and infusing it with meaning. But Jesus' analogy says something more. It says that your ability to do this is directly correlated to the way that your environment has shaped you. Maybe you're highly educated and qualified, and you sacrifice time and resources and relationships to get to be who you are, and sometimes you're a little conflicted about those choices you've made, but guess what? You are able to bring meaning, or you're able to bring healing, or you're able to bring structure to the world with your specialized skills and with your attention to detail. Or maybe you've spent time traveling or you've lived in other cultures and those experiences have shaped in you a profound awareness of what it means to be an outsider. And you salt the earth with your compassion and your advocacy or your open-heartedness to others. Or maybe you have some tragic loss in your story. There's suffering in some of your past experience and as a result, you have this incredible ability to season the hard experiences that other people are going through with your empathy and with your tenderness and with your wisdom of how to make it out of the dark. And when we think this way, all of a sudden Jesus doesn't seem to be saying that we should be a certain way, but instead we see him inviting us to see our experiences as shaping this divine quality in us where we're able with our love and our work and our affection to embody how God still loves the world. And we're able to add striking beauty and significance to others' experiences and we're able to do so uniquely where we are because of what the hard salt pans in our stories have shaped in us. Now, where Jesus' analogy of salt is a little hard to untangle, his use of light is the opposite. See, it's widely agreed upon that the composer of Matthew was writing from and to early Jewish Christian communities. And these were communities that saw Jesus as intimately connected with their history and their tradition. And this is why Matthew often makes links to Hebrew prophets and more specifically to the Hebrew prophet Isaiah who spoke about what the Messiah would be like when the Messiah showed up and how God ultimately intended for the Hebrew people to be a light for the nations, to be a light for those who weren't Jewish. And scholars see Matthew drawing on this loaded historical image where Isaiah's light for the nations in chapter 42 becomes Jesus's light of or for the world. And see, Jesus here, he isn't pulling any punches for his followers. He says, look, you are a light in the world. And he alludes to how the city of Jerusalem, how it would have been able to be seen for miles and miles, and its lights would have been obvious to the first century traveler. And then he says, in effect, and no one lights a lamp 
and just puts it under a kitchen bowl. No, you put a lamp in the middle of a room to light that room. You light a lamp to ward off darkness. But if Jesus was tying into the great texts of Isaiah, he's doing more than saying something like, your faith is like a little light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And it's funny how that children's song kind of infantilizes what Jesus is getting at. Because it does seem like Jesus is concerned about what one scholar calls the danger of diminishment. And this is because Jesus believed that the simple work he was doing in the country and on the roadsides of ancient Palestine, he didn't see this work as just being a little light. He saw it as a blazing beacon one that had been burning for century after century, this sign of God's longing to draw all of the nations to God's self. And he is saying to his followers, and certainly to you and to me in some degree, don't downplay even the simplest of good works performed. Don't downplay your patience and your care with your children. Don't downplay your inclusion and your welcome for that difficult manager on your team or that immigrant family on your street. Don't downplay your conscious choice to be faithful to your work or to your partner or to your friends. Not your choice to acknowledge your own selfishness and actively forgive the people who hurt you. Don't downplay your active sharing of your space and your food and your time with the people that you pass by. And why shouldn't we downplay those? Somebody might have wanted to ask. And Jesus, in effect, in verse 16 says, well, because those simple things you don't, don't draw attention to how amazing you are or to your impeccable reputation so much as they show God's great love for the world. And they hint at the fullness of divine affection that's expressed in deeds quietly and tenderly done which Jesus says people will not be able to look away from. But get this, I know that some days it feels like the choice to be a light is really hard to make. It's those days where Jesus' words here can feel heavy and demanding. And it's why I love what one commentator says. This commentator talks about how the Greek construction of these phrases takes the indicative, which just refers to how Jesus is making statements of fact. You are salt, you are light. How the Greek takes those phrases and turns them into imperatives, where Jesus isn't explaining why or how we're supposed to be or do these things. He just says, be. Be a seasoning presence in your home and in your neighborhood. And be a light in the middle of all the normalness you're walking through with all of your lagging energy and all of your imperfect motivation and with all of your scrambling for significance and security, perform the simplest kindness. Be yourself and in that, God says. I will tell the world the story of my ancient love that is ever reaching and I will give the world a taste of a life worth living. But then Jesus whispers and he says, through you I'll kindle a world with kindness. 
like a porch light left on bright enough to bring you all home again. Let's pray. God, we're present to your grace that approaches each one of us. As we pick up the mystery of an ancient text and we find that it comes close to us and it reads the patterns of our own experience in the world and even as you say in the text, Jesus, it begins to light a way for us. We thank you for the privilege that wherever we are and whoever we are in this story, that we all get to hear this message, that we're all invited to take one more step towards your best for us. And we ask that you would help us to pay attention to the ways that we have been shaped by our surroundings and our experiences to bring flavor and vibrancy to the world. And God, for some of us, that's really hard work because it means we have to own our story. And it means we have to come clean about who we are. And I pray that you would give us grace as we do that work and give us tenderness with the parts of our past that we're not so sure of. And I ask too that you would help us to be sort of woken up by this idea that no work is too small. That simplest things have this profound ability to bring light and to shine light and to restore light in the world. We thank you for the peace that we experience in these moments. Go with us now, we ask, in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.